249, Chapter 1 of Gulliver's Travels. Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 249, There Are No Small Rolls, Only Small... Um, wait. This week's episode is brought to you by Knit Circus, the e-newsletter that can arrive in your mailbox delivering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can sign up at www.knitcircus.com. And Seed Pod Publishing, a micro-publisher cooperative. We publish books, not for their value as products, but for their value. Any questions? And Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories for heart and home. Well, hello! Holy smokies, it has been a long time. I felt a little bit better because I was able to bring you the fabulous F. Scott Fitzgerald story. And wasn't that marvelous? If if you are joining us for the first time, I'm going to fill you in on a, a few things about craft lit in general and just the books the parallel show in case you are not interested in the crafty chat um, but if this is your first time listening you should know that back two episodes we listened to because of a listener who sent in the audio we listened to an f scott fitzgerald short story called a diamond as big as the reds and it is not a short story that is anthologized very often certainly not in high school textbooks and Darn it, but I don't know why. Why do they insist on putting that awful and boring, what is it, Winter's, not Winter's Tale, it's Winter something. It's in all the American lit textbooks, and it's, it kind of reads like, uh, oh, what was that book, A, A Separate Piece? That's the way I always thought of that particular F. Scott Fitzgerald story. And Diamond as Big as the Ritz, am I wrong? Was that awesome? satire and humor and bargaining with God and all sorts of... Oh, well, that's why, isn't it? I mean, that's... That's why. It's because... It's because it's a satire. And satire is ugly. And satire can offend people. And satire is what we're about to dive into with Gulliver. I'm going to contain my joy. I'm going to restrain myself from squealing into the microphone. I am so excited about this. But first, I have a whole lot of stuff that I've been saving up to share with you. The first is you may have noticed we have new sponsors. There's Little Acorn Productions. Little Acorns is going to have something very specifically to do with cheddar. That's all I'm saying for now. I'm going to explain more later. The other one is Seed Pod Publishing. Now, some of you probably already know one of the proprietresses at Seed Pod Publishing, but just in case you aren't familiar with this business, let me share. Are you ready for an offbeat and touching spring read? Scattershot, the debut novel from author Richard Goodwin, pairs a 23-year-old vagabond on his way to Vegas with a wayward geriatric on the lam from her overprotective dentist son. This odd couple stumble into an unforgettable romance that will leave you tearing up and laughing out loud. Don't miss Scattershot by Richard Goodwin, available in a Kindle store, iBookstore, 
and wherever fine ebooks are sold. You can also visit Seed Pod Publishing for scattershot and other contemporary literary titles you won't be able to put down. That's Seed Pod Publishing, all one word, dot com. The next thing I wanted to share with you is a brand new podcast. Hello, I'm Gail. And I'm Charlene. And we'd like to introduce you to our new podcast, The Yarniacs Podcast. In our podcast, we talk about what we are wearing, what we are stalking, what we are knitting, and who are we? We're two besties stalking the perfect yarn and the perfect pattern to go with it. You can find us on iTunes at Yarniacs Podcast or visit our blog with show notes at yarniacs.com. We have a Ravelry group, and you can follow us on Twitter at Yarniacs. We hope you listen. Happy knitting! So a new knitting podcast for those of you who are knitters. Now, I hear you. The podcast is called Craftlet, and Heather kind of fell off the wagon as far as talking about new, different, more kinds of crafts. Lately, I have been, I admit, all knitting all the time, and it's because I'm doing so much more design work between the, the Hunger Games socks and the pattern I'm about to tell you about and all of the book work that I've been doing. I really haven't had time to do the other stuff that I like to do, the sketching and the, the needlepoint and things like that. So a whole bunch of things have kind of coalesced around me all at once, and they pretty much directly affect you. The first is, if you haven't met Tara Swiger online, she does uh, Blonde Chicken Boutique Yarns, and she's just a fabulous person, and she's really good at helping people like me, who are made very uncomfortable by talks of business and marketing and sales and stuff like that, that just kind of gives me the screaming heebie-jeebies. She's very good at making stuff like that make sense and palatable, making it palatable to people like me. She has a new book coming out called Market Yourself that's coming out from Cooperative Press. And at some point, I will chat with her on the show and you'll, you'll be able to find out more about her and, uh, and see if her book sounds like something that could help you with your small business. Because I know so many of us in this wacky, unpleasant economy are, are, are finding ourselves needing to supplement our income somehow. And especially after our last tax bill, you would think that losing our house in Arizona would mean that we would get a refund, and and you would be wrong for so many reasons. It was a very ugly April. But all of that aside, the good news is that Tara has encouraged me and everyone else to communicate a little bit better. And that, I mean, it's no joke. It's a podcast. I'm talking. You're listening. You can talk back to me all you want and tell me anything you feel like telling me. I don't mind a bit, but I won't hear it unless it's in writing. And so what I've done is I've constructed a quick little survey. And the survey is for both Craftlet and Just the Books listeners. It divides itself. So like once you say that you listen to Just the Books, you don't get Craftlet questions anymore. And once you say you listen to Craftlet, you don't get Just the Books questions anymore. It also includes stuff like how do you listen? What are you doing while you listen? If you're not a knitter and you're doing some other kind of crafty thing, would you be interested in talking to me while I record our conversation so that I can share a little bit more about what you're doing while you're listening to the show? Because you guys have 
which you have proven time and time again, because you are just better than everyone else. You have proven time and time again that you have your fingers on the pulse of not just our zeitgeist, but all sorts of cool things that are happening all over the place. I can no longer be everything to everyone. I guess it's part of growing up. I'm not thrilled about that. But I would like to give you guys a platform as often as possible, not just on our Craftlet family page, but, but also on the show itself from time to time to chat up stuff that you're doing and cool things that you've found and neat things that you've accomplished, achieved, discovered, invented. And so that survey helps me find you and also collect some important demographic information like are you listening with children which is something i hear about from time to time but you know i'm making estimations based on the emails that i get whereas i could be getting much more specific information which would help me know just how often i will have to stress with gulliver don't listen to this chapter with children around because it is a satire and there's some serious stuff it's not a horror like Dracula, but there are some tricky sections that Jonathan Swift goes into because he's an interesting guy and he had lots of interesting things to say. So that's the first bit. There's a survey. And you know, if you don't have time, don't feel pressured. If you do have time, it'll probably take you five minutes. If you don't type in any like the fill in the blanks things, it'll probably take you less than that. You just go click, 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 done. Uh, but I really do appreciate it if you, if you do find the time. It would, it would help me a lot. The second thing that is changing, and, and this is another pretty dramatic change, um, there's always been a donations button on the show notes. And many, so many of you, especially last fall when things were looking pretty dire, you really stepped in and, and you know, bellied up to the bar and helped out the show enormously. And I'm so grateful. But I also know from my own experience that I, <laughs> we joke about it, if I don't see it, it doesn't exist. It's very much the, ooh, shiny school of life. If I'm not thinking about it when I'm at the computer, I will not donate to the podcast that I listen to. Not because I'm a bad person, not because I am nefarious and trying to get something for nothing, but simply because life is busy and I don't always think about it at the right time. Therefore, I have gone to PayPal. I have paid them money because nothing is free. And I now have the ability to put a button on the show notes, both at Just the Books and at Craftlet, that will let you sign up as a subscriber. What that means is that every month, I guess I, I imagine it's on the same date you know, month date that you, uh, that you sign up on. So if you sign up on the 27th, then it would be the 27th of every month. PayPal will go and they will suck $5 out of your account. I wrestled back and forth with doing different levels of subscription and should there be like a $2 level and a $15 and whatever. You know what? Most podcasts that are doing this are doing five bucks. And I thought five bucks, that is fine. I, I I would pay $5 for my favorite podcast a month. So you go, you subscribe, you get $5 a month. Once you go through the PayPal process, you will be sent to a very special landing page 
on the CraftLit site. And on there, there will be secret special instructions for you. Because as a subscriber, if you sign up for the newsletter, and there's the instructions are on the landing page, if you sign up for that subscriber-only newsletter, you will get some really fantastic freebies over the tenure of your subscription. For as long as you remain a subscriber, you will get extras. Things like Canterbury Tales. That's right. If you subscribe, you will be at in your inbox email newsletters that contain links to Canterbury Tales. I'll be doing it as a serial, just like we do just the books, but, uh, but that will be the first subscriber-only premium. So, there's that. There's the iPhone app. There are questions on the survey about the iPhone iTouch Droid app, like, we're kind of limited by what our feed host allows me to do in the confines of the phone app. So, knowing what those restraints are, what kinds of extras would you like to see on the phone? That's another thing. That's a different thing. That's different from the subscriber thing. The subscriber thing is really supporting the show financially. The iPhone iTouch Droid app is about accessing the shows easily. And there's a Just the, Bo the Books app and a Craftlet app. And of course, none of this changes the actual podcast. Craftlet is free. It will always be free. Because I know there are lots of blogs and lots of podcasts that are switching over to a fee-based thing and I just it's literature nothing will change if you don't want to pay you don't have to I totally understand if you do want to pay now you can get something kind of nice and extra if you don't want to do the five dollars a month but you do want to donate the regular old tip jar will stay there and you can donate once a year it doesn't matter nothing in the regular delivery system is going to change. We're still on Stitcher Radio, both Just the Books and Craftlet. We still will have the free players on the show notes at craftlet.com and just-the-books.com. That's our new website for Just the Books. Very exciting. Um, and just so you know, I, some people are still having problems with the Craftlet show notes. And Penny of Little Acorn Productions and I are absolutely baffled because now we have tried the show notes. Well, first off, we've been redoing them behind the scenes. You'll notice some visual changes, but mostly we've been going and Penny's been ripping out code and cleaning stuff up and CSS that was a mess has been fixed. We cannot for the life of us figure out why some people are still having trouble with the show notes specifically. iTunes is its own weird beast. Show notes those suckers should be good now. We've tried them on multiple systems. New Mac systems, old Mac systems, new PC systems, old PC st systems. The only thing we can think is that some people are still on old versions of Internet Explorer. And Internet Explorer, especially like 5 and 6, are those suckers are cranky and old. And, and that is the only thing we can think of. So if you're having trouble... And if, for whatever reason, you can't update your Internet Explorer or use Firefox, or you are on a perfectly new system with perfectly new browsers and you're still having trouble, there is always craftlit.libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. That is a mirror image of the show notes, just not very pretty, 
but it is it is the show notes. There's nothing missing. And that's actually the site host feed. That's where the actual podcast is hosted and where it comes out of and gets sent to iTunes and Stitcher and stuff like that. So there is that option. And if you're on Just the Books, it's jtb.lipson.com. Okay, other things that are going on. Next week, I'm going to have an interview for you with uh, a new book author, a book that I think many of you might find really useful. Um, But this week, I did want to just reiterate something that kind of flew by last week on uh, when we did Fitzgerald, or a couple weeks ago when we did Fitzgerald. Number one, I'm going to start having hashtag-based conversations on Twitter with everyone. Some people are doing these like meetings on Twitter where everybody gets on at roughly the same time and they use a hashtag to localize their conversation within the larger cacophony of Twitter. Um, We're going to do the same thing. It doesn't have to be real time is the cool thing for us. And uh, I still am trying to get in touch with the two people from the Fitzgerald conversation who have won what would Madame Defarge knit bracelets, the nice little wine colored, get it? Uh, silicone bands that say WWMDFK on them. Uh, I will continue to try and get in touch with you. And in the meantime, we have a new conversation to start about Gulliver. If you go to craftlit.com or just hyphen the hyphen books.com, you will see a link towards the top of this week's show notes that you can click on and it will take you to Twitter and it will put the correct hashtag in and life will be good and you can type in your comment. So that's number one. And uh, at least for this week as well, I will still do a hashtag winner. The second thing is this month, that would be April 2012 and May 2012, there will be an incentive for those of you who donate. This would be either subscribing or just donating. And that would be your very own What Would Madame Defarge Knit Political Action Committee t-shirt. Yes! I have an extra large. It is available. I will pick a name out of all of the people who donate to the show during April or May 2012. And one of you will be a lucky winner. Actually, I have a medium and a large, so you can let me know which one uh, for the winner this month, which one would be the best for you. And um, and so that is that piece of news. The third piece of news is Cooperative Press has two new goodies for you. These are both linked to from the show notes. So you can read more. There is a Cooperative Press Sock and Mitt Club all sorts of goody goodness coming out of that. Kind of like, you know, how a lot of uh, indie dyers or, or yarn companies are doing the sock clubs. Well, this is patterns, sock slash mitt patterns and yarn, right? And it's all cooperative press designers. So all good people who you want to support anyway. And a cooperative press magazine is coming. I will be writing for that. That is on its way. And golly, in fact, I need to send my article in, uh, don't I? I've been a little distracted getting ready for Gulliver, you know. Ooh, there's a new Gulliver button, an I listen Gulliver at Craftlet button. This one is ever so much more stylish than my previous buttons, and that is because Elizabeth of Dark Matter Knits made the button for us, and it is mighty 
attractive. You're going to see a lot of really interesting uh, little tidbits going by with um, Gulliver art because Arthur Rackham, thank you, Julie, over at Forgotten Classics, Arthur Rackham did a whole mess load of art for Gulliver's Travels. So I'll be pulling in some Rackham designs every once in a while and, uh, and showing those off to you, especially if you are on the iPhone iTouch or Droid app. You'll see those as wallpapers for a good while now. And speaking of our friend Julie over at Forgotten Classics, I will be on the air with her this weekend. I'm so excited about this. I was invited to come and speak on SFF Audio. This is a podcast run by uh, Jesse Willis. Julie is on it frequently. Um, it's a very interesting podcast where they discuss books and literature and text and a lot of science fiction but it is uh it's always nice to listen to interesting conversations that are being conducted by interesting people and that is exactly what happens over at sff audio and because of that i'm really kind of overwhelmed and excited at being invited to uh to go over in fact they had a conversation about uh gulliver and um uh, you'll hear me talking about watching versions of Gulliver not spoiling things, and that is true, but I I would hesitate to tell you to listen to the SFF audio of it quite yet. I would wait until you're into the story just a little bit longer before you hop over there, because um, there are some spoilers of things that you kind of want to see happen or experience happening. It's totally going to sound like I'm contradicting myself, but it, it, it does actually make sense. Anyway, SFF Audio, I will put a link to that in the show notes so you can listen to. Already, the audio for our story is up. We will be talking about The New Mother, a short story from the, what, 1880s, 1885, I think, that I read for, uh, like, a LibriVox story. You know, I just recorded the audio. And then uh, that audio is up already, so you can kind of listen before you listen to our conversation. And then we're also going to be talking about Philip K. Dick's story, oh, the, father. the Father Thing, which is fantastically creepy. A little harder to find, but I love Philip K. Dick, so it's always worth the hunt. And Coraline from Neil Gaiman, because these stories... Uh, or at least the new mother directly affected, but I have a feeling that Philip K. Dick's story did too, uh, directly affected Neil Gaiman in his writing of the story Coraline. So that stuff is exciting. I'm, I'm just giddy. I'm so excited. Now, I have, I have a little pattern to share with you. I am so excited. During this break, I... As you know, I, I worked on the Hunger Games socks, which I am so excited about, and I'm, I am working on a top-down version. There were lots of reasons why the original was knit toe-up. Um, between the, the fitted sole and the detachable, replaceable sole, uh, toe-up with a heel flap, which is unique in itself, with a fitted arch, which is crazy unique. Um, all of that was much easier to design that way, strangely enough, because toe up with a heel flap is not usually easy for me, but this one just made sense. However, I know not everyone is a fan of the toe up sock, and I understand that. So I'm working on a top down version, so that's pending, but it got pushed to the side because I realized when I was up at the photo shoot for what would Madame Defarge knit 
part deux, or actually it's being called What Else with Madame Defarge When I was up at the photo shoot, I got this wacky idea that we need a mascot. Ravelry has a mascot. Stephanie Pearl McPhee has her socks. Craftlet needs a critter. And so I offer unto you Cheddar, the Craftlet critter, our new mascot. Cheddar is a mousy. He's about five inches tall, um, depending. I mean, yours could be taller or shorter. He has arms. He has a cute little tail. He has little ears, and the ears on mine are floppy. And, uh, and mine has kind of soft, fuzzy whiskers, although if you use DMC floss or like good quilting thread, I think you could probably get some nice stiff whiskers out of him. He is easy to knit in all one piece because I hate seaming completely, and I will avoid it at any cost. Uh, this does mean that doing his ears and hands is its a little bit fiddly because I pick up the stitches and then I knit as I go. You may find that you would prefer to just cast on and sew those suckers on, and that's fine for you, but darn it, I'm i am going to pick up my stitches and go with it from there. He is, um, he's a little roly-poly. He's a little roly-poly beastie, and my boys have tested and retested Cheddar to prove con- conclusively that he is in fact a weeble and he will not fall down. Uh, I, I weighted the base of my, my Cheddars with um, buckwheat groats. Yeah, I know. It's what I had. I didn't want to use rice because I was afraid the rice would start to poke through, but the buckwheat groats are kind of a funny shape and uh, it seems to be working. So no complaints with the buckwheat groats. I couldn't get weighted beads. They didn't have any at my Michaels. Go figure. What's up with that? So I have I have two cheddars, one knit in Koigu and one knit in the March Hare's Tristan, which is kind of the cobblestone gray color that was used for the Tristan socks in What Would Madame Defarge Knit? Part oh. This pattern is on sale via the craftlet.com show notes. However, if you are interested in subscribing, don't buy the pattern first. Subscribe to the podcast first and see where it takes you. If you are not a knitter, but a crocheter, we are working up a crochet pattern for you. And we are also working up completed cheddars, which if you are not a knitter or a crocheter, you can purchase a completed cheddar. Um, Obviously, because these are being hand knit, there will be a little bit of time that you have to wait between ordering and receiving, but those will be uh, linked to from the show notes as well. And uh, and then you can you can get a cheddar for yourself or your true loved ones one way or another. So I will be sitting here with cheddar as I podcast for for the duration. Oh, the other thing to know, we will be releasing clothing for Cheddar and on, on the Ravelry thread, we'll have a gallery of clothing for Cheddar because I, I feel very, very strongly that a mouse should never be naked in, <laughs> in public. I used to make little mouse houses out of grass at school, you know, just like make-believe dollhouses for the field mice, I guess at our school. I don't actually know if there were any mice, but that's what we spent our time doing in second grade. And, uh, you know, one of the things we would do is like weave little skirts and stuff for the mice. Well, I, I didn't weave a skirt. I'm working on some girly clothes uh, because cheddar, uh, cheddar could be a girl or a guy. 
doesn't matter. But right now, my cheddar has a rough. And if you go to craftlit.com, you will see cheddar in the rough. Not in the buff. Well, actually, kind of in the buff. But uh, a Shakespearean rough because uh, cheddar is a fan of Chop Bard Podcast. And why is cheddar a fan of Chop Bard Podcast? Could it be because Aaron Siegler, host of Chop Bard Podcast, is our reader for Gulliver's Travels? Yes, it could be. And oh my goodness, how cool is it that we have a friend of the show who is an actor and a kickin' reader. Oh my goodness. I i don't want to cast aspersions. You know, it's really not my way. But I will say this. Entre nous, when initially prepping to do Gulliver's Travels, I listened to the David Hyde Pierce version of Gulliver's Travels off of Amazon. And I love David Hyde Pierce. He's charming. He's marvelous. He's lovely. Loved him in Frasier. Saw him in Spamalot. He's just delightful. But, complete honesty between us here, Siegler's better. And I'm not making it up. He's, uh, he's just marvelous and exactly what this podcast needed and i am ever 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 so grateful to him for taking the time out of his schedule and not an inconsiderate amount of time out of his schedule to record gulliver's travels for us so let's do it shall we gulliver's travels is a satire that was written by jonathan swift now he did not write this story when he was a spring chicken. He'd been around the block quite a bit, and it shows, and it shows in a lot of different ways. And in most of our stories, I find that it is important to front load as much information as possible into the introductory information to the book. I don't think that is as important for our work with Jonathan Swift. Uh, for one thing, the book is, is old. It is old by anyone's standards. It's going back, I mean, Jonathan Swift was born in, in, uh, in 1667, which is, you know, not even, what, 70 years after, uh, not even 60 years after the death of Shakespeare. So, it's old. It's old. And unlike, say, Twain who uh, would be considered kind of left of center, who was at attacking the status quo, as it, as it were, from the left. Um, or at least you could argue that point. Uh, Swift was more conservative, and he was actually attacking new stuff, favoring uh, a way of life that was on its way out, which means that he wasn't as successful because, you know, time marches on and change is inevitable. And if your argument is pointing out the stupid new stuff, when golly, all the kids think the new fangled new phone is the cool hip thing to be or to have, um, you're going to have a hard time. It's going to be an uphill battle. And, uh, and Swift spent much of his life quite disappointed. Now, you will also be, I think, shocked to know that he was a man of the cloth. I was shocked to know that, because if your only entree 
into Jonathan Swift is his essay, A Modest Proposal, then being told that he actually worked for the clergy in Ireland might be a bit of a surprise. For those of you who aren't familiar with A Modest Proposal, I plan to do this at the end because the text is dense and while it is hilariously funny, it is also quite disturbing. It is, in a nutshell, a very serious, harsh satire against people who would complain about uh, population or overpopulation, especially among Catholic families in Ireland. Too many children. And you can tell that this was an issue, that the upper class was saying, well, you know, if those poor people would simply just stop having children, then everything would be fine. And Swift goes into his essay and says, well, gosh, you know, these people are poor, so that's bad. And they're having too many children, so that's bad. So, I mean, the obvious solution is to have them sell the babies, the succulent, plump, juicy babies, as, um, as food. They'd make an excellent roast for a rich person. You'd get rid of the surface population and the poor family would get some money out of it. It's a win-win for everyone, right? It's horrifying. It's horrifying. It's also written in a way that is absolutely funny. But that kind of horrifying funny that makes you go, oh my gosh, you know, there's, there's no, there's no question, but that he is pointing out something really quite awful in the argument, or not the argument, but in the, the way that the poor were being criticized. It was a very effective way to point out the stupidity. It's like Charles Lamb, I think it was, uh, during the women's rights movement when uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, Mary Shelley's mother, was, was writing a vindication of the rights of women, Charles Lamb is like, wow, you know, dudes, what's the worst that can happen? Either the women get the vote and they prove that they can't handle it, or they get the vote and they do good things for the country. How is this bad for anyone? You know, that's a rational argument that people could listen to, although they didn't. Um, but with an emotional thing like children and poverty arguments that are still uh, problematic in our modern world um, Jonathan Swift really went for the jugular and that is what you're gonna find him doing over and over again all throughout Gulliver's travels now I don't I don't think he ever uh, he doesn't ever really go as far as he does with a modest proposal into a kind of a vile uh, in-your-face way to deal with an argument. But he does make a lot of kind of tricky points. Um, the first chapter that we will listen to is, is not satiric to our ears, but it was very much satiric to his time. Now, if, if you've ever read the book Candide, which is a book that I would very much like to do on the podcast someday, uh, Voltaire, Voltaire was a very interesting guy himself and, and had his own little satiric digs that he liked to do. Uh, Voltaire, Moliere, all these, all these guys whose names end with air seem to have been really good humorists and satirists and good at pointing out people's flaws. But um, if you've ever read Candide, you are familiar with a narrator who is an innocent. Forrest Gump is a good modern version. Or if you've ever seen uh, Being There, Chauncey Gardner. Uh, that kind of uh, naive, innocent, gullible, but not in a 
not necessarily in a negative way, just kind of wide open and, you know, kind of taking it all in because golly jeepers, isn't it a great world kind of thing? Well, Lemuel Gulliver is a little bit like that. And in fact, when this book was released in uh, 1726, it was just a little bit shy of Jonathan Swift's 59th birthday when the book came out, there was no name on the book other than Lemuel Gulliver. This is Travels into Several Remote Nations of the World in Four Parts by Lemuel Gulliver, first a surgeon and then a captain of several ships. And that is what the title page said, because Swift was quite nervous about publishing this with his name on it, especially since he was a member of the clergy, because the church does not escape the satire either. And um, it turns out that people figured it out quite quickly. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow, this sounds like Jonathan Swift. Hmm, we should ask him. Yes, yes, I did write that. Oh, that's fabulous. From that point on, it was known as Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift almost immediately. So he never went through this kind of, you know, hidden period where something was published by Anonymous and it turned out to have been What's-His-Face from Newsweek. Um, this was this was Jonathan Swift's from the beginning, or, or close to the beginning. And, and along with Swift's name not being attached originally, we really never hear Lemuel Gulliver called by name throughout the book. And you all know that the, the first part of the book is, is the part that takes place in Lilliput with the Lilliputians. And, um, and that's almost rare, never referred to in the book as well. It's very interesting how uh, this book became such a part of our uh, Western canon shorthand. And not just the canon shorthand, but the kind of societal shorthand the referring to Lilliputians is something that children learn early on. Oh, you know, that was a story about a guy who went to a other country, different continent, and all the people were tiny. And, you know, six inches tall. And that's awesome, especially if you're a kid, because you're already small. The idea that there's somebody out there who's smaller than you... That's kicking, and especially good because the little guys in Lilliput are smart and awesome and doing all this really cool stuff. And so as a little kid, that's a very attractive thing. And I think that's why almost universally, if this is going to be turned into a movie or a TV show or something, it is only the Lilliput section that gets done. Now, if you are interested, as well you might be, there is... Uh, we were only able to get it through our, I think they have it on Netflix. I will have to link to it because it was hard to identify. Um, I think they still have it on Netflix as a DVD. They do not have it as a streaming option. Uh, we got it through our library. There's a Ted Danson version of Gulliver's Travels. And as with everything on television, they took their liberties. And they, they changed something like... Uh, in one of the places that he goes, the emperor was changed to an empress and played by Alfre Woodard. And my feeling is, rock on. If, I mean, if you're going to change it, get Alfre Woodard because she kicks and she's extremely regal and beautiful. And so, it, you know, that works. And it also works in some sense to uh, make the place even more other because it's a woman 
who's running things. And while Jonathan Swift would never have been able to get away with that, because who would have believed that a mere woman... And of course, this is still post-Elizabeth, but it doesn't matter. Who would believe that a mere woman would be able to run a country like that? Um, the the choice to put in Alfre Woodard, I think, was a good one. Uh, Peter O'Toole is the king or the emperor in Lilliput, and he's marvelous. They changed Gulliver's frame story significantly, but his actions within the places that he visits... That stuff is almost dead on the book. And unlike things like Dracula or Woman in White, things like that, I don't think you spoil anything in this book by watching a a well-done video adaptation while we're reading. You don't spoil anything. You don't spoil any ending. And one of the reasons why I say that is, number one, it's a satire, and satire is complicated. And the more you understand about the framework, the easier it is to focus on the complicated stuff and figure that out. So that's one reason. But the other reason why I think it's, it's kind of not such a bad idea is because this, this book is written in all of my theater people will smile, kind of a Brechtian style. It's an old-fashioned format. It's one that I appreciate and enjoy and get a kick out of. And that is that each chapter begins with a menu. It's like a schedule of events. The first chapter says, chapter one, the author gives some account of himself and family, his first inducements to travel, he is shipwrecked and swims for his life, gets safe on shore in the country of Lilliput, is made a prisoner, and carried up the country. It's like, well, thanks for coming. Have a great day. You know, I just told you the whole story. That's because the important part isn't the plot. The important part is what happens within the plot. You know, if, if he had said, um, and, and the, the author dies, <laughs> it's the first chapter, and the author dies, um, that's going to give you pause and you're going to focus and say, ooh, well, how? how? Good Lord, why? How does that happen? And then it gives you the, the chance to focus on the how you get there rather than just the getting there. And that's, I know that's not a very modern attitude towards storytelling, but I think it's a, when you're dealing with a satire that's as complicated and multi-layered as something written by Jonathan Swift, I don't think it's a bad thing. So, Ted Danson. Even if you never liked Ted Danson, I actually think you might like him in this. And he does a very good, credible, gullible Gulliver. Um, and Mary Steenburgen plays his... Steenburgen? Steenburgen plays his wife. And she's marvelous. She could read the phone book. She's fabulous. Now there is, I know, the more recent and uh, probably even better known Jack Black version of Gulliver's Travels, which I have watched with my children. Um, they watched. They actually watched the Ted Danson version, and we had talked about Gulliver's Travels so much, all of the four books of Gulliver's Travels so much, that uh, I think it was fine. Um, there are some parts that went right over their heads, and that was fine too. Um, the Jack Black version, it got criticized for. <laughs> For scenes that involve urination, among other things, but definitely that. And the sad thing is, that the scenes that it got most criticized for 
are the ones from the book. So, we have illiterate movie reviewers reviewing a movie based on a very old book. And they, I mean, it's fine. It's Jack, you know, it's the redemption of the schlub kind of movie. And that's fine. Um, I think the, the place that I would like to give it credit where nobody else seemed to give it credit, is that instead of just staying with Lilliput, they did actually venture past that point and into another part of the book. They changed that part significantly, but they made the point that they were trying to make. And I, you know, I'll give them credit for that because most stuff just stays in Lilliput and calls it done. But they did go into um, some of the ridiculousness of the fighting and infighting um, within the, the Lilliputian section, which we will get to next week. And so, you know, it's not horrible. It's not great art, but it's, if you have kids and, you know, they're over the age of, I don't know, 10, they'll, they'll like the peeing jokes. And you, and you can feel satisfied in your decision as a parent because that's in the book. I know, I'm going to play you a book with a scene of public urination in it. <laughs> Aaron Siegler and I have been chuckling about all of the things that you are in for in this book. And, uh, and, and wish we could get pictures of your eyes bugging out of your heads a couple of times, because those moments will happen as we listen. Okay, a few things that you should know in order to get some of the subtleties of the setup. Um, Gulliver is middle class. He is uh, not from London. He's from north of London. He comes from a pretty solid middle to lower middle class family. He is apprenticed young. Um, and I think we have had many instances on this podcast of unreliable narrators. And I think one of the interesting things in this case is we can be fairly confident that Jonathan Swift wrote for us the most reliable narrator possible. As, as close to a journalistic narrator as he could get, because he doesn't want us to even notice Gulliver most of the time. He wants us to notice what's being said around him, and then notice what he's saying in response especially when he's talking politics, but, but other times as well. So Gulliver is a very simple, straightforward, guileless narrator. But that's also interesting because that means, well, how bright can this guy be, right? And so Swift has Gulliver go to Cambridge. And this I found fascinating. Cambridge was started in 1209 when a bunch of students from Oxford who were unhappy with their education they were getting at Oxford went to Cambridge. Isaac Newton became a professor of mathematics at Cambridge in 1669. He's only 27 years old when he becomes a professor. Newton was still alive when Gulliver's Travels was released and Swift didn't like him. I'm not sure why. I think we'll probably get there. But Swift does not like Newton. He doesn't like Newtonian science. And Newton is at Cambridge. So where is Swift going to send Gulliver to study science 
if he wants to prove that Gulliver is not the sharpest knife in the drawer, he's going to send him to Cambridge. Now, Swift... <laughs> Swift was no great student, as far as I can tell. He didn't go to Oxford. He didn't go to Cambridge. He wound up going to school in Ireland at uh, Trinity College in Dublin. So, I'm not casting aspersions on Trinity College in Dublin, by the way. Fine institution. I'm just saying it is interesting that Swift was a good enough writer and little enough of an egoist when it comes to writing that instead of trying to prop himself up personally... He takes what is a largely understood slight and uses that as part of kind of a character reference for you, a, a point of reference for you to understand that Gulliver mm, wasn't good enough to get into Oxford. So, <laughs> so that's a little tidbit that I thought you might find interesting. It, it seems that Gulliver is just a little bit older than Swift is himself. And, uh, and the period of time that they both were Gulliver, an actual person, that they both lived through, was um, pretty tumultuous. He, I don't, I don't really want to get into an enormous um, history of British Civil Wars kind of thing, but um, it, what this means is that Gulliver and Swift were born shortly after Charles II was restored to the throne. That means that their fathers, Gulliver Swift, Swift's real father, uh, Gulliver's imaginary father, would have lived through that turbulent period of the English Civil Wars and the dictatorship of Oliver Cromwell. Now, this is never discussed anywhere in the book, but it, it sort of informs how Swift um, m might kind of get nostalgic for, for old times because he's looking for stability and solidity and not crazy, dangerous, newfangled ideas. Does that make sense? Uh, you will hear talk of apprenticeships, and as I think we're all well aware, apprenticeship was the, the name of the game, uh, especially for a, a young uh, middle-class, up-and-coming middle-class young man. Um, seven years was the normal time period for an apprenticeship. Gulliver gets out in four, which either means something went wrong or something went very, very right. And it's, it's kind of hard to tell. Um, surgery really wasn't yet a branch of medicine. It was still kind of a mathematical science barbershop thing. Uh, and, then, and then moving from that into navigation, being a ship's captain, uh, that is very much a matter of mathematics. So when Gulliver talks to us about navigating a ship, he talks to us about it as though it were simply a matter of mathematics, because really, honestly, it was. It was a matter of spherical trigonometry. So he, um, he's not stupid. He's not stupid. He is just simple and guileless. He is incapable of deceit, I think, is the way the easiest way to think about him. Now, Swift does a, a pretty good job of dealing with actual locations when he can. Obviously, Lilliput is made up, but he does talk rather specifically about his travels um, from and to all of these places. And that includes, you know, we went to Leiden or we went to um, the, uh, the Levant or um, he, he lived in the Old Jewry. And this is interesting because the Old 
Old Jury, J-U-R-Y, was more properly spelled Old Jewry, J-E-W-R-Y. And it was named this because it was the original ghetto section of London. Now, the Jews were expelled from England in 1290 by Edward I because he took all the money he could out of them to pay for his wars. And then when they ran out of money, he was like, well, you're not worth it anymore. So he kicks all the Jews out. And, um, and they were finally able to return, those who wanted to, uh, while Cromwell was in, three and a half centuries later. But they found new ghettos at that point. So uh, the old jury and other places where Gulliver lives are middle to lower middle class places. And that is an accurate picture of where someone of his rank would have lived. You will also hear the word mistress. You'll hear him talk about his wife, Mrs. Mary Barton. This does not indicate that she was a widow and had been married previously. It was a term of respect for a woman uh, from a family with a trade. Just like mister is a, a business term. Mistress is a business term. Um, it had nothing to do with marital status. That's I, I always figured that that's where Ms. came from. MS was a shortening of, of mistress as a, a term of business because it shouldn't have any, you know, if you're a working woman, it shouldn't matter whether you're married or not. I don't know if that's true or not. It's probably apocryphal, but it made sense. And, uh, and, and so when you hear him talk about his wife as Mrs., Mary Barton, it's, it's a indication of her level in society and not an indication of her marital status. Um, you'll also hear him talk about Van Diemen's land. Van Diemen, spelled V-A-N, this is Dutch, D-I-E-M-E-N. Van Diemen's land is an island off the southeastern shore of Australia. Is this sounding interesting to you? It was discovered in 1642 by a Dutch explorer, Abel Janzoon Tasman, who'd been commissioned for the task by Anton van Diemen, then governor general of the Dutch dominions in the East Indies. Tasman named it after his superior, but in 1855, it was renamed Tasmania after its discoverer, and it holds that name to this day. So that gives you kind of a location to put into your head when he talks about being northwest of van Diemen's land. Now, one of the things that... Um, Swift had to come up with a solution for, kind of like um, Douglas Adams coming up with the Babel fish. Um, the problem of Gulliver traveling to other countries that do not speak English, how do we get around that problem? Well, the way we get around that problem is Gulliver's really good at learning languages, and we just let it go at that. Now, I happen to be related to a sister who is really good at learning languages, and it drives me nuts but she she can do it so i i do know for a fact that there are people who can learn languages ridiculously quickly gulliver seems to be one of those people uh but that doesn't stop jonathan swift from putting words non-english words into the mouths of various characters and sometimes those words are just nonsense he just made up words kind of Lewis Carroll-like. And sometimes you can kind of hear in them something that you probably are supposed to hear. Not so much in this first chapter, but later on, there are times when you're like, yeah, really? <laughs> that sounds a little bit too close to something that I recognize. And of course, when that happens, it's supposed to. Uh, 
So sometimes it's just fun. Sometimes it's meaningful. And uh, <laughs> if there's ever, ever a moment that's tricky, I will let you know about. At, at one point, Gulliver is going to talk about wearing a buff jerkin. That'd be short for buffalo. And whether the leather was actually buffalo or not, it was thick leather. And therefore, it was protective. And, uh, and that was important. Uh, hogshead. You're going to hear about hogsheads. Those are those big wooden barrels. And depending on the barrel, it could hold anywhere from 40 to 140 gallons. That is a lot. A lot, a lot, a lot of weight. And, you know, we had the hogshead thing back in uh, Tale of Two Cities, the wine barrels that fell off the cart and, and shattered. Um, serious stuff if 140 gallons <laughs> falls and smashes. That would be big. Now, the last thing that I wanted to let you in on before we, we go any further into our journey with Gulliver is this. There was, during this time period, um, it, it was a, a form of literature that has more or less died out, or maybe not died out, but been supplanted with uh, a newer version of it. This, this old style reporting were these travel logs. And in the United States, in the early days of the United States, those travel logs were also captivity narratives. Um, the, the most famous one that I remember from teaching American literature was Mary Rowlandson's Captivity Nar Narrative. This is a woman who was captured by a Native American tribe and, and lived with them and I, I think, you know, probably converted all of them to Christianity. And, and so it becomes this kind of triumphant thing of how, uh, how she was captured by savages and then she brought them all to Christ and and so she was able to emerge not only unscathed but heroic and you know I'm not making fun of of the the action but the way it was uh, discussed and displayed was this it was like the arc of a Tom Cruise movie you know and and these were extremely popular and then there were these travel books that did the same thing about how how I survived 500 days with nothing but a cup full of water and a small piece of paper to shade my weary brow you know and they'd go on and on and on about all the details and how the floorboards creaked this way in the morning and that way in the afternoon and they just had these long detailed passages about how many nails there were used to build the ships and it was insane well Jonathan Swift is making fun of those so when he sets out on any voyage, that's what you're hearing is part of what he's making fun of is a format that we really don't have anymore. And so I encourage you when we hit those sections, acknowledge them and let it go. You're going to be bored because there's no humor in it for you because it's, it's making fun of stuff you don't listen to or watch or hear or read fine. That's fine. Your ears will prick up when the interesting stuff starts coming in again, and that's fine. The other thing that happens in this book is Jonathan Swift starts with uh, a letter, and Aaron Siegler has recorded it for you, and the, the letter is, it cracks 
it absolutely cracks me up. There is evidently, because Jonathan Swift did not want to be identified with his um, anti-government sympathies that were obvious within the book, uh, the original manuscript was changed by the publisher, and a lot of the satire was kind of trimmed and cut back and defanged, as it were. And he was ticked. And so he, he wrote a new, he got a new edition printed. And in it, he wrote a fictional letter from Gulliver to his brother, or to his, his cousin, Richard Simpson, suggesting uh, arrangements be made for fixing the proofs and, and kind of apologizing for, I did not approve of this that you made and this change and that. And so he kind of gets his point across to his readership without, without Swift having to step forward and go, hey, dudes, you changed up my manuscript. Stinky. So one of the things that they also added was a picture, an engraving picture of Gulliver, who, you know, doesn't exist. And underneath it, it says Captain Lemuel Gulliver, Splendid Mendax. Now, <laughs> Splendid Mendax means magnificent liar. <laughs> So if people hadn't figured it out by now, they were going to figure it out pretty quickly. So the first piece of satire that we hear is this letter from Gulliver, not a real person, to his brother, or his cousin, not a real person, all written by Swift, a real person, to explain the mistakes with the first printing, a real event, of a book by a guy who doesn't exist, Gulliver, who is pictured in the front of the book with the subtitle Magnificent Liar. I love that. These guys had fun. Alexander Pope, who wrote The Rape of the Lock, he and Jonathan Swift were friends. That just gives you a little bit, a little bit more context for, for this guy. And by the way, I did forget, while Jonathan Swift went to Trinity College in Dublin for his undergrad, he did eventually get a master's from Oxford. So that just gives him more fuel for sending Gulliver to Cambridge a school that he, Jonathan Swift, would consider inferior. The other thing is Lemuel's name, Lemuel Gulliver. Lemuel is not a very common name. I had one student named Lemuel in my whole teaching career, and he is actually the only Lemuel I've ever known. Lemuel shows up in the Old Testament. In Proverbs 31, 1 and 4, the words of King Lemuel, the prophecy that his mother taught him, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine. And Lemuel is Hebrew for consecrated to God. So there it is. Uh, and of, of course, um, going back to a, a nice, solid, religious, um, respectful name just adds that much more credit to Gulliver's story of his travels. And, uh, and Swift wants people to pay attention. This, this all started out kind of as a joke. Uh, among his friends, Alexander Pope being one of them, of you know who can write the best satire of one of these voyage narratives, these travel narratives. And it took him 10 years to do it. And uh, it wound up being a lot more than just a satire of, of those kinds of stories. But, um, but certainly in its abridged versions, it's a, a fine tale for children, an adventurous tale for children. But for we who are a bit older, it is so, so much more. And so now I'm going to play you first the letter and then the first chapter of 
Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. The publisher to the reader. The author of these travels, Mr. Lemuel Gulliver, is my ancient and intimate friend. There is likewise some relation between us on the mother's side. About three years ago, Mr. Gulliver, growing weary of the concourse of curious people coming to him at his house in Red Riff, made a small purchase of land with a convenient house near Newark in Nottinghamshire, his native country, where he now lives retired, yet in good esteem among his neighbours. Although Mr. Gulliver was born in Nottinghamshire, where his father dwelt, yet I have heard him say his family came from Oxfordshire. To confirm which, I have observed in the churchyard at Banbury, in that country, several tombs and monuments of the Gullivers. Before he quit Redriff, he left the custody of the following papers in my hands, with the liberty to dispose of them as I should think fit. I have carefully perused them three times. The style is very plain and simple, and the only fault I find is that the author, after the manner of travellers, is a little too circumstantial. There is an air of truth, apparent through the whole, and indeed the author was so distinguished for his veracity that it became a sort of proverb among his neighbours at Redriff when any one affirmed a thing to say it was as true as if Mr. Gulliver had spoke it. By the advice of several worthy persons, to whom, with the author's permission, I communicated these papers, I now venture to send them into the world, hoping they may be, at least for some time, a better entertainment to our young nobleman than the common scribbles of politics and party. This volume would have been twice as large if I had not made bold to strike out innumerable passages relating to the winds and tides as well as to the variations and bearings in these several voyages, together with the minute descriptions of the management of the ship in storms in the style of sailors, likewise the account of longitudes and latitudes, wherein I have reason to apprehend that Mr. Gulliver may be a little dissatisfied— but I was resolved to fit the works as much as possible to the general capacity of readers. However, if my own ignorance in sea affairs shall have led me to commit some mistakes, I alone am answerable for them. And if any traveller hath a curiosity to see the whole work at large, as it came from the hands of the author, I will be ready to gratify him. As for any further particulars relating to the author, the reader will receive satisfaction from the first pages of the book. Richard Simpson A letter from Captain Gulliver to his cousin Simpson. I hope you will be ready to own publicly, whenever you shall be called to it, that by your great and frequent urgency you prevailed on me to publish a very loose and uncorrect account of my travels with directions to hire some young gentleman of either university to put them in order and correct the style as my cousin Dampier did by my advice in his book called A Voyage Round the World. But I do not remember I gave you power to consent that anything should be omitted and much less that anything should be inserted. Therefore, as to the latter, I do here renounce everything of that kind, particularly a paragraph about Her Majesty Queen Anne, of most pious and glorious memory, although I did reverence and esteem her more than any of human species. 
but you, or your interpolator, ought to have considered that it was not my inclination, so was it not decent to praise any animal of our composition before my master Huinum. And besides, the fact was altogether false, for to my knowledge, being in England during some part of Her Majesty's reign, she did govern by a chief minister, nay, even by two successively, the first whereof was the Lord of Godolphin, and the second the Lord of Oxford, so that you have made me say the thing that was not. Likewise, in the account of the Academy of Projectors, and several passages of my discourse to my master Huinum, you have either omitted some material circumstances, or minced or changed them in such a manner that I do hardly know mine own work. When I formally hinted to you something of this in a letter, you were pleased to answer that you were afraid of giving offence, that people in power were very watchful over the press, and apt not only to interpret, but to punish everything which looked like an innuendo, as I think you called it. But pray... How could that which I spoke so many years ago, and at above five thousand leagues distance, in another reign, be applied to any of the yahoos who now are said to govern the herd, especially at a time when I little thought or feared the unhappiness of living under them? Have not I the most reason to complain when I see these very yahoos carried by huinams in a vehicle as if they were brutes and those the rational creatures? and indeed to avoid so monstrous and detestable a sight, was one principal motive of my retirement hither. Thus much I thought proper to tell you in relation to yourself and to the trust I repose in you. I do in the next place complain of my own great want of judgment in being prevailed upon by the entreaties and false reasonings of you and some others very much against mine own opinion to suffer my travels to be published." Pray, bring to your mind how often I desired you to consider, when you insisted on the motive of public good, that the yahoos were a species of animals utterly incapable of amendments by precepts or examples. And so it hath proved, for instead of seeing a full stop put to all abuses and corruptions, at least in this little island, as I had reason to expect, Behold, after above six months' warning, I cannot learn that my book hath produced one single effect according to mine intentions. I desired you would let me know by a letter, when party and faction were extinguished, judges learned and upright, pleaders honest and modest, with some tincture of common sense, and Smithfield blazing with pyramids of law-books, the young nobility's education entirely changed." the physicians banished, the female yahoos abounding in virtue, honour, truth, and good sense, courts and levies of great ministers thoroughly weeded and swept, wit, merit, and learning rewarded, all disgracers of the press in prose and verse, condemned to eat nothing but their own cotton, and quench their thirst with their own ink. These and a thousand other reformations I firmly counted upon by your encouragements." as indeed they were plainly deducible from the precepts delivered in my book, and it must be owned that seven months were a sufficient time to correct every vice and folly to which yahoos are subject, if their natures had been capable of the least disposition to virtue or wisdom. Yet so far have you been from answering mine expectation in any of your letters, 
that on the contrary, you are loading our carriers every week with libels and keys and reflections and memoirs and second parts, wherein I see myself accused of reflecting upon great states folk of degrading human nature, for so they have still the confidence to style it, and of abusing the female sex. I find likewise that the writers of those bundles are not agreed among themselves, for some of them will not allow me to be author of mine own travels, and others make me author of books to which I am wholly a stranger. I find likewise that your printer hath been so careless as to confound the times and mistake the dates of my several voyages and returns, neither assigning the true year or the true month or day of the month, and I hear the original manuscript is all destroyed since the publication of my book. Neither have I any copy left. However, I have sent you some corrections, which you may insert if ever there should be a second edition, and yet I cannot stand to them, but shall leave the matter to my judicious and candid readers to adjust it as they please. I hear some of our sea yahoos find fault with my sea language, as not proper in many parts, nor now in use. I cannot help it. In my first voyages, while I was young, I was instructed by the oldest mariners, and learned to speak as they did. But I have since found that the sea yahoos are apt, like the land ones, to become new-fangled in their words, which the latter change every year, insomuch as I remember upon each return to mine own country their old dialect was so altered that I could hardly understand the new, and I observe when any yahoo comes from London out of curiosity to visit me at mine own house, we, neither of us, are able to deliver our conceptions in a manner intelligible to the other. If the censure of yahoos could any way affect me, I should have great reason to complain that some of them are so bold as to think my book of travels a mere fiction out of mine own brain, and have gone so far as to drop hints that the Huinam and yahoos have no more existence than the inhabitants of Utopia. Indeed, I must confess that as to the people of Lilliput, Brobden Rag, for so the word should have been spelt and not erroneously Brobden Nag, and Laputa, I have never yet heard of any Yahoo so presumptuous as to dispute their being or the facts I have related concerning them, because the truth immediately strikes every reader with conviction. And is there less probability in my account of the Huinams or Yahoos when it is manifest as to the latter? There are so many thousands in this city who only differ from their brother brutes in Huinam land because they use a sort of jabber and do not go naked. I wrote for their amendment and not their approbation. The united praise of the whole race would do of less consequence to me than the neighing of those two degenerate Huinams I keep in my stable, because from these, degenerate as they are, I still improve in some virtues without any mixture of vice. Do these miserable animals presume to think that I am so far degenerated as to defend my veracity? Yahoo as I am, it is well known through all Huinam land that by the instructions and example of my illustrious master, I was able in the compass of two years, although I confess with the utmost difficulty, to remove that infernal habit of lying, shuffling, deceiving, and equivocating so deeply rooted in the very souls of all my species, especially the Europeans. I have other complaints to make upon this vexatious occasion, but I forbear troubling myself or you any further. I must freely confess that since my last return, some corruptions of my Yahoo nature have revived in me by conversing with a few of your species, 
and particularly those of mine own family, by an unavoidable necessity. Else I should never have attempted so absurd a project as that of reforming the Yahoo race in this kingdom. But I have now done with all such visionary schemes forever. April 2nd, 1727. Part 1. A Voyage to Lilliput. Chapter 1. The author giveth some account of himself and family, his first inducements to travel, he is shipwrecked and swims for his life, gets safe on shore in the country of Lilliput, is made a prisoner and carried up the country. My father had a small estate in Nottinghamshire. I was the third of five sons. He sent me to Emmanuel College in Cambridge at fourteen years old, where I resided three years and applied myself close to my studies. But the charge of maintaining me, although I had a very scanty allowance, being too great for a narrow fortune, I was bound apprentice to Mr. James Bates, an eminent surgeon in London, with whom I continued four years. My father, now and then sending me small sums of money, I laid them out in learning navigation and other parts of the mathematics useful to those who intend to travel, as I always believed it would be some time or other my fortune to do. When I left Mr. Bates, I went down to my father, where, by the assistance of him and my Uncle John and some other relations, I got forty pounds and a promise of thirty pounds a year to maintain me in Leiden. There I studied physic two years and seven months, knowing it would be useful in long voyages." Soon after my return from Leiden, I was recommended by my good master, Mr. Bates, to be surgeon to the Swallow, Captain Abraham Pannell, commander, with whom I continued three years and a half, making a voyage or two into the Levant and some other parts. When I came back, I resolved to settle in London, to which Mr. Bates, my master, encouraged me, and by him I was recommended to several patients. I took part of a small house in the old Jewry, and, being advised to alter my condition, I married Mrs. Mary Burton, second daughter to Mr. Edmund Burton, hosier in Newgate Street, with whom I received four hundred pounds for a portion. But my good Master Bates, dying in two years after, and I having few friends, my business began to fail, for my conscience would not suffer me to imitate the bad practice of too many among my brethren. Having therefore consulted with my wife and some of my acquaintance, I determined to go again to sea. I was surgeon successively in two ships and made several voyages for six years to the East and West Indies by which I got some addition to my fortune. My hours of leisure I spent in reading the best authors, ancient and modern, being always provided with a good number of books, and when I was ashore, in observing the manners and dispositions of the people, as well as learning their language, wherein I had a great facility by the strength of my memory." The last of these voyages not proving very fortunate, I grew weary of the sea and intended to stay at home with my wife and family. I removed from the old Jewry to Fetter Lane and from thence to Wapping, hoping to get business among the sailors, but it would not turn to account. After three years' expectation that things would mend, I accepted an advantageous offer from Captain William Pritchard, master of the Antelope, who was making a voyage to the southeast. We set sail from Bristol, May 4th, 1699, and our voyage was at first very prosperous. It would not be proper, for some reasons, to trouble the reader with the particulars of our adventures in those seas. Let it suffice to inform him that in our passage from thence to the East Indies, we were driven by a violent storm to the northwest of Van Diemen's Land. By an observation, we found ourselves in the latitude of thirty degrees two minutes south. 
Twelve of our crew were dead by immoderate labor and ill food. The rest were in a very weak condition. On the 5th of November, which was the beginning of summer in those parts, the weather being very hazy, the seamen spied a rock within half a cable's length of the ship, but the wind was so strong that we were driven directly upon it and immediately split. Six of the crew, of whom I was one, having let down the boat into the sea, made a shift to get clear of the ship and the rock. We rowed, by my computation, about three leagues till we were able to work no longer, being already spent with labor while we were in the ship. We therefore trusted ourselves to the mercy of the waves, and in about half an hour the boat was overset by a sudden flurry from the north. What became of my companions in the boat, as well as those who escaped on the rock or were left in the vessel, I cannot tell but conclude they were all lost. For my own part, I swam as fortune directed me, and was pushed forward by the wind and tide. I often let my legs drop, and could feel no bottom. But when I was almost gone, and able to struggle no longer, I found myself within my depth, and by this time the storm was much abated. The declivity was so small that I walked near a mile before I got to the shore, which I conjectured was about eight o'clock in the evening. I then advanced forward near half a mile, but could not discover any sign of houses or inhabitants. At least I was in so weak a condition that I did not observe them. I was extremely tired, and with that, and the heat of the weather, and about half a pint of brandy that I drank as I left the ship, I found myself much inclined to sleep. I lay down on the grass, which was very short and soft, where I slept sounder than ever I remember to have done in my life, and as I reckoned, about nine hours, for when I waked, it was just daylight. I attempted to rise, but was not able to stir, for as I happened to lie on my back, I found my arms and legs were strongly fastened on each side to the ground, and my hair, which was long and thick, tied down in the same manner. I likewise felt several slender ligatures across my body from my armpits to my thighs. I could only look upwards." The sun began to grow hot, and the light offended my eyes. I heard a confused noise about me, but in the posture I lay, could see nothing except the sky. In a little time, I felt something alive moving on my left leg, which advancing gently forward over my breast, came almost up to my chin. When bending my eyes downwards as much as I could, I perceived it to be a human creature not six inches high, with a bow and arrow in his hands and a quiver at his back. In the meantime, I felt at least forty more of the same kind, as I conjectured, following the first. I was in the utmost astonishment, and roared so loud that they all ran back in a fright, and some of them, as I was afterward told, were hurt with the falls they got by leaping from my sides upon the ground. However, they soon returned, and one of them, who ventured so far as to get a full sight of my face, lifting up his hands and eyes by way of admiration, cried out in a shrill but distinct voice, Hekina Dengol! The others repeated the same words several times, but then I knew not what they meant. I lay all this time, as the reader may believe, in great uneasiness. At length, struggling to get loose, 
I had the fortune to break the strings and wrench out the pegs that fastened my left arm to the ground, for by lifting it up to my face, I discovered the method they had taken to bind me, and at the same time, with a violent pull which gave me excessive pain, I a little loosened the strings that tied down my hair on the left side so that I was just able to turn my head about two inches. But the creatures ran off a second time before I could seize them, whereupon there was a great shout in a very shrill accent, and after it ceased I heard one of them cry aloud, Tall gold for neck! when in an instant I felt above a hundred arrows discharged on my left hand, which pricked me like so many needles. And besides, they shot another flight into the air, as we do bombs in Europe, whereof many, I suppose, fell on my body, though I felt them not, and some on my face, which I immediately covered with my left hand. When this shower of arrows was over, I fell a-groaning with grief and pain, and then striving again to get loose, they discharged another volley larger than the first, and some of them attempted with spears to stick me in the sides. But by good luck, I had on a buff jerkin which they could not pierce. I thought it the most prudent method to lie still, and my design was to continue so till night, when, my left hand being already loose, I could easily free myself. And as for the inhabitants, I had reason to believe I might be a match for the greatest army they could bring against me if they were all of the same size with him that I saw. But fortune disposed otherwise of me, when the people observed I was quiet, they discharged no more arrows, but by the noise I heard, I knew their numbers increased, and about four yards from me, over against my right ear, I heard a knocking for above an hour, like that of people at work. When turning my head that way, as well as the pegs and strings would permit me, I saw a stage erected, about a foot and a half from the ground, capable of holding four of the inhabitants, with two or three ladders to mount it, from whence one of them, who seemed to be a person of quality, made me a long speech, whereof I understood not one syllable. But I should have mentioned that before the principal person began his oration, he cried out three times, Langro de Hulsan! These words and the former were afterwards repeated and explained to me, whereupon immediately about fifty of the inhabitants came and cut the strings that fastened the left side of my head, which gave me the liberty of turning it to the right, and of observing the person and gesture of him that was to speak. He appeared to be of a middle age, and taller than any of the other three who attended him, whereof one was a page that held up his train, and seemed to be somewhat longer than my middle finger. The other two stood one on each side to support him. He acted every part of an orator, and I could observe many periods of threatenings, and others of promises, pity, and kindnesses. I answered in a very few words, but in the most submissive manner, lifting up my left hand and both my eyes to the sun as calling him for a witness, and being almost famished with hunger, Having not eaten a morsel for some hours before I left the ship, I found the demands of nature so strong upon me that I could not forbear showing my impatience, perhaps against the strict rules of decency, by putting my finger frequently to my mouth to signify that I wanted food. The hergo, for so they call a great lord, as I afterwards learned, understood me very well. He descended from the stage and commanded that several ladders should be applied to my sides, on which above a hundred of the inhabitants mounted and walked towards my mouth 
laden with baskets full of meat, which had been provided and sent thither by the king's orders upon the first intelligence he received of me. I observed there was the flesh of several animals, but could not distinguish them by the taste. There were shoulders, legs, and loins, shaped like those of mutton and very well dressed, but smaller than the wings of a lark. I ate them by two or three at a mouthful, and took three loaves at a time, about the bigness of musket bullets. They supplied me as fast as they could, showing a thousand marks of wonder and astonishment at my bulk and appetite. I then made another sign that I wanted drink. They found by my eating that a small quantity would not suffice me, and being a most ingenious people, they slung up with great dexterity one of their largest hogsheads, then rolled it towards my hand and beat out the top. I drank it off at a draught, which I might well do, for it did not hold half a pint, and tasted like a small wine of burgundy, but much more delicious. They brought me a second hogshead, which I drank in the same manner, and made signs for more, but they had none to give me. When I had performed these wonders, they shouted for joy and danced upon my breast, repeating several times as they did at first, Hekina de Gul! They made me a sign that I should throw down the two hogsheads, but first warned the people below to stand out of the way, crying aloud, Borak! Mevula! And when they saw the vessels in the air, there was a universal shout of Hekina de Gul! I confess I was often tempted, while they were passing backwards and forwards on my body, to seize forty or fifty of the first that came in my reach, and dash them against the ground. But the remembrance of what I had felt, which probably might not be the worst they could do, and the promise of honour I made them, for so I interpreted my submissive behaviour, soon drove out these imaginations. Besides, I now considered myself as bound by the laws of hospitality to a people who had treated me with so much expense and magnificence. However, in my thoughts I could not sufficiently wonder at the intrepidity of these diminutive mortals who durst venture to mount and walk upon my body while one of my hands was at liberty without trembling at the very sight of so prodigious a creature as I must appear to them. After some time, when they observed that I made no more demands for meat, there appeared before me a person of high rank from His Imperial Majesty. His Excellency, having mounted on the small of my right leg, advanced forwards up to my face with about a dozen of his retinue, and producing his credentials under the signet royal, which he applied close to my eyes, spoke about ten minutes without any signs of anger, but with a kind of determinate resolution, often pointing forwards, which, as I afterwards found, was towards the capital city, about half a mile distance, whither it was agreed by his majesty in council that I must be conveyed. I answered in few words, but to no purpose, and made a sign with my hand that was loose, putting it to the other, but over his excellency's head for fear of hurting him or his train, and then to my own head and body to signify that I desired my liberty. It appeared that he understood me well enough, for he shook his head by way of disapprobation, and held his hand in a posture to show that I must be carried as a prisoner." However, he made other signs to let me understand that I should have meat and drink enough and very good treatment, whereupon I once more thought of attempting to break my bonds, but again, when I felt the smart of their arrows upon my face and hands, which were all in blisters, and many of the darts still sticking in them, 
and observing likewise that the number of my enemies increased, I gave tokens to let them know that they might do with me what they pleased. Upon this, the Hergo and his train withdrew with much civility and cheerful countenances. Soon after, I heard a general shout with frequent repetitions of the words, Peplom Salam! and I felt great numbers of people on my left side relaxing the cords to such a degree that I was able to turn upon my right and to ease myself with making water, which I very plentifully did to the great astonishment of the people, who, conjecturing by my motion what I was going to do, immediately opened to the right and left on that side to avoid the torrent which fell with such noise and violence from me. But before this, they had daubed my face and both my hands with a sort of ointment, very pleasant to the smell, which in a few minutes removed all the smart of their arrows. These circumstances, added to the refreshment I had received by their victuals and drink, which were very nourishing, disposed me to sleep. I slept about eight hours, as I was afterwards assured, and it was no wonder— for the physicians, by the emperor's order, had mingled a sleeping potion in the hogsheads of wine. It seems that upon the first moment I was discovered sleeping on the ground, after my landing, the emperor had early notice of it by an express, and determined in council that I should be tied in the manner I have related, which was done in the night while I slept, and plenty of meat and drink should be sent to me, and a machine prepared to carry me to the capital city." This resolution perhaps may appear very bold and dangerous, and I am confident would not be imitated by any prince in Europe on the like occasion. However, in my opinion, it was extremely prudent, as well as generous. For supposing these people had endeavoured to kill me with their spears and arrows while I was asleep, I should certainly have awaked with the first sense of smart, which might so far have roused my rage and strength as to have enabled me to break the strings wherewith I was tied, after which, as they were not able to make resistance, so they could expect no mercy. These people are most excellent mathematicians, and arrived to a great perfection in mechanics by the countenance and encouragement of the emperor, who is a renowned patron of learning. This prince has several machines fixed on wheels for the carriage of trees and other great weights. He often builds his largest men of war, whereof some are nine feet long, in the woods where the timber grows, and has them carried on these engines three or four hundred yards to the sea. Five hundred carpenters and engineers were immediately set at work to prepare the greatest engine they had. It was a frame of wood raised three inches from the ground, about seven feet long and four wide, moving upon twenty-two wheels. The shout I heard was upon the arrival of this engine, which, it seems, set out in four hours after my landing. It was brought parallel to me as I lay. The principal difficulty was to raise and place me in this vehicle. Eighty poles, each of one foot high, were erected for this purpose, and very strong cords of the bigness of pack-thread were fastened by hooks to many bandages, which the workmen had girt round my neck, my hands, my body, and my legs. Nine hundred of the strongest men were employed to draw up these cords by many pulleys fastened on the poles. And thus, in less than three hours, I was raised and slung into the engine, and there tied fast. All this I was told, 
for while the whole operation was performing, I lay in a profound sleep by the force of that soporiferous medicine infused into my liquor. Fifteen hundred of the emperor's largest horses, each about four inches and a half high, were employed to draw me toward the metropolis, which, as I said, was half a mile distant. About four hours after we began our journey, I awaked by a very ridiculous accident. For the carriage being stopped a while to adjust something that was out of order, two or three of the young natives had the curiosity to see how I looked when I was asleep. They climbed up into the engine and advanced very softly to my face. One of them, an officer in the guard, put the sharp end of his half-pike a good way up into my left nostril, which tickled my nose like a straw and made me sneeze violently. Whereupon they stole off unperceived and it was three weeks before I knew the cause of my waking so suddenly. We made a long march the remaining part of the day, and rested at night with five hundred guards on each side of me, half with torches and half with bows and arrows, ready to shoot me if I should offer to stir. The next morning at sunrise we continued our march, and arrived within two hundred yards of the city gates about noon. The emperor and all his court came out to meet us, but his great officers would by no means suffer his majesty to endanger his person by mounting on my body. At the place where the carriage stopped, there stood an ancient temple, esteemed to be the largest in the whole kingdom, which, having been polluted some years before by an unnatural murder, was, according to the zeal of those people, looked upon as profane, and therefore had been applied to common use, and all the ornaments and furniture carried away. In this edifice it was determined I should lodge. The great gate fronting to the north was about four foot high and almost two foot wide, through which I could easily creep. On each side of the gate was a small window, not above six inches from the ground. Into that on the left side the king's smiths conveyed fourscore and eleven chains, like those that hang to a lady's watch in Europe, and almost as large, which were locked to my left leg with six and thirty padlocks. Over against this temple, on the other side of the great highway, at twenty foot distance, there was a turret at least five foot high. Here the emperor ascended with many principal lords of his court to have an opportunity of viewing me, as I was told, for I could not see them. It was reckoned that about a hundred thousand inhabitants came out of the town upon the same errand, and in spite of my guards, I believe there could not be fewer than ten thousand at several times who mounted upon my body by the help of ladders, but a proclamation was soon issued to forbid it upon pain of death. When the workmen found it was impossible for me to break loose, they cut all the strings that bound me, whereupon I rose up with as melancholy a disposition as ever I had in my life. But the noise and astonishment of the people at seeing me rise and walk are not to be expressed. The chains that held my left leg were about two yards long and gave me not only the liberty of walking backwards and forwards in a semicircle, but being fixed within four inches of the gate allowed me to creep in and lie at my full length in the temple. And there you have it, the beginning of Gulliver's Travels. Now, I admit... So far, it's not uproaringly riotous in its humor. That's fine. Remember 
who he was writing this for. Swift was trying to parody a specific style. And in order to parody that style successfully, he was going to have to actually maintain the image of that style. He has set us up in our first location, Lilliput, and he has absolutely taken the bull by the horns by creating this race of people who are six inches tall-ish, roughly. Uh, he is in kind of a serious situation, as it is, being chained and all. He has also provided us with some of the initial humor. There will be more of that coming along of a urinary nature. <laughs> it's very interesting to me, actually, because, you know, things like that really weren't talked about in any of these books, these old books, even new books, you know, stuff is always happening to people. And you're like, really? How did you, you really didn't have to go to the bathroom ever? You know, it's the kind of question children ask. And so I think it, it says a lot about Jonathan Swift that uh, while he had very odd relationships with women, which we'll get into more about later, um, he did seem to maintain his childlike view of the world and literature as well. More adventures come next week. And, uh, and on that note, I, I will leave you. I'm going to go finish knitting my second cheddar, still working on his hands. And then, uh, and, and I'll probably be finishing that while watching Thing 2's third baseball game because he's playing Little League this year. So I have lots of stitch and pitch time. I am not at all unhappy about this. That's it for me. Take care. Enjoy. Please visit Little Acorn Creations and Seed Pod Publishing and Knit Circus, the e-newsletter. And... I will talk to you again very soon with more goody goodness for you. And, uh, and I hope you have a great week. <gasps> and you know what else this is? Holy smoke. I didn't realize it until just now. It's a potiversary. Yesterday. We're starting seven years together. Just to put it into perspective. Which means that in a little over a week, I turn another year older. I'm not really thrilled about that part. I can take it a leap. I mean, better than the alternative, right? right? But some days I kind of wonder if that's really true. <laughs> These days are good though. These days are very good. You take care of yourself. I will talk to you soon. Have a great one. There are many ways to listen to Craftlet. You can listen on your smartphone via the Stitcher radio app. You can subscribe free through iTunes, or you can download and listen to the iPhone, iTouch, and Android app where you'll receive occasional extras for the show. Craftlet is supported in a number of ways. Knit Circus, the free e-newsletter featuring three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at knitcircus.com. Also, the What Would Madame Defarge Knit series, volume two, What Else Would Madame Defarge Knit, is now in pre-orders. You can find out more from the links in the show notes at craftlet.com. Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories from the heart and home. And Seed Pod Publishing, a micro-publisher cooperative publishing books, not for their value as products, but for their value. Any questions? Craftlet is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. If you would like to help support the show, 
please know there are various ways to donate. And all of them help keep Craftlit and Just the Books free and available to you whenever you feel the need for a good story. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.